right, well, turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 2 is where we'll be at this morning. First Peter chapter 2, and we'll read verses 18 to 25 this morning, but we'll really focus in on verses 24 and 25. So 1 Kings, 1 Kings, 1 Peter, sorry, that would be, uh, that'd be, that'd be, that'd be a pretty good ways off. Okay, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 18, says, Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect. Not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing, when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was there deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your holy word, and Lord, we thank you that you have provided, Lord, a, a way in which those who have strayed like lost sheep, Lord, may be returned back to you, Lord, brought back into your family, back into your fold. Lord, this through the sacrifice of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, Lord, who bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to our sin and live to righteousness. Lord, it is through his wounds, through his sufferings, Lord, that we have been healed of our disease of sin. Lord, teach us that this is the only way that any man from the beginning of time until the end can ever be saved or be made right in your sight. And Lord, open our eyes to see these realities that, Lord, if we are not in Christ, then we remain in our sin and we remain under your wrath and condemnation. So Lord, teach us today, Lord, to put our hope and our faith in Christ and in Christ alone. Lord, as uh, the only salvation that has been provided. And Lord, we pray that you would give us confidence, Lord, knowing that if we have fled to him for refuge, Lord, that we will not be disappointed, but that you will ensure the salvation of our souls. So Lord, teach us today, and it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Well, in this passage, the apostle is using Jesus as an example. He's using him as an example for slaves who are suffering under the tyranny of an unjust master, right? The master is punishing the slave, though the slave is doing good, right? Though he's living a godly and righteous life, he is suffering for the sake of righteousness. And he's putting forward for the slave that he can endure these types of sufferings because this is to be like Christ, that Jesus Christ himself suffered great injustices in this life, though he had not committed any sin. There was no deceit in his mouth. There was no sin within him at all. And yet, even though he was a sinless, perfect, a righteous man, yet we know that Jesus suffered great injustice in this life in that he died as a criminal. He was put to death there on the cross. We know that the result of this suffering of Christ was our own salvation, that this is the good fruit that God brought out of this great evil that Christ endured. His endurance of this brought about this great result, and this is the context of this passage in 1 Peter 1, 18 to 25, where he's putting this before these slaves in order to encourage them to endure under the tyranny, under the uh, unjust treatment of their masters, so that they might also obtain a great reward. And in the midst of this, we have this great declaration in verses 24 and 25 of what it is that Christ has accomplished through his sufferings, right? The fruit that he has brought about as a result of his many sufferings that he endured in this present world, the good and glorious result of his endurance. 
So we have this very clear, explicit statement concerning the work of Christ and how it is that he has secured the eternal redemption of his flock or of those who are his sheep. The point being here is that if the sufferings of Christ produce such a good result, namely our redemption, then we also ought to be able to endure our own sufferings knowing that God will continue to bring good out of evil. This is the way that God works. He brings good out of evil. Christ's tormentors meant it for evil, but God turned it for good, right? To preserve many lives to this very day. And so we as well will have our tormentors, our persecutors, those who will seek to do evil against us, just as these Christian slaves were having their unjust masters cruelly treat them, yet God is going to take their cruelty and turn it for the good of these slaves. And so this is how they are able to endure. Follow the example of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and see this good result that was produced out of his suffering and out of his death. And so that's what we're going to focus on today in verses 24 and 25. What is this good result, this salvation that came about that was the product of the sufferings of Christ so that we also may be able to endure in the day of evil? 1 Peter 2 verse 24. It says there, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. There he says, He himself, he himself being Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, the Son of God in human flesh. This is the sacrifice provided by God for the redemption of his people. He was not a mere man. He was not an angel. He was not an animal. He was not any other created being, but he was the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God in human flesh, God incarnate who came, and this is the sacrifice that God put forward as a substitute for sinners. This is as it says in Galatians 4, verse 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. God sent forth His Son, the second person of the Trinity, His only Son, and He is born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law. Or as it says in John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son. God gave His only Son. This is the sacrifice God has provided for the redemption, for the salvation of his people. Jesus Christ, he himself, the radiance of the glory of God, the image of the invisible God. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John chapter 1, verse 14. Only he could take away our sins. Only God in human flesh could be a sacrifice that, was, that would satisfy the wrath of God and the legal demands, the justice that we owed to God because of our own sin. In any tradition, any false religion that teaches that Jesus Christ was not fully God, that he was not the Son of God as described by the Bible, that teaches that he was an angel or that he was merely a good man, or that he was some created being, even if he was the greatest of the created being. Anyone who denies the full divinity of Jesus Christ, his equality with God the Father, is denying the faith and has no hope of eternal life. This would be true of the Mormon religion, the Jehovah's Witnesses, the Muslims, right? All of them, none of them deny Jesus Christ, but they deny the Jesus Christ of the Bible. The Jesus that they teach, the Jesus that they preach, is not the Jesus that is found in the words of Scripture. But he is an angel. He's the archangel Michael. He's a man. He's a prophet. But he's not the Son of God. But that's not what the apostle is teaching here. When he says he himself, he means Jesus Christ. And he doesn't mean any Jesus Christ. He means the true Jesus Christ, the one revealed in the pages of Holy Scripture who is the Son of God, the Son of God born as a man, God incarnate. This is the person who has been provided by God 
for salvation, for redemption, the one revealed in Scripture. Now, what does Jesus do? Notice what he says. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. Jesus Christ bore our sins in his body. We know that Jesus was sinless. He was righteous. He was the only man to ever walk the face of this earth who was truly righteous in the sight of God, who was an innocent man that never committed any sin. He's the one who always did the will of his Father who is in heaven. From the time of his conception until the time of his death, he never sinned one time. He presented to God perfect obedience in his heart, in his mind, in his words, in his actions, in his attitude, whatever it was, he presented to God perfect obedience, perfect righteousness. He is the only one to ever love God with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love his neighbor as himself from the day of his conception till the day of his, birth, of his death without any violation, no trespass ever, of these two great commandments of God that are then further defined and explained in the ten holy commandments of God. And this he did because he was fully God and fully man. Right? Of course, as God, he cannot sin, but also as man, he never sinned one time. As a man, he lived a perfectly righteous life. The only man that this can ever be said of. No one else can this be said of. No matter how good we may think they are, no matter how good they may claim to be, that none of us are righteous in the sight of God. This is, as it says in Romans chapter 3, verses uh, 9 to 19. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. This is the testimony of Scripture concerning natural man, concerning all of us, that there is no one who is righteous. There's only one who is righteous, and that is the Son of God. But in terms of those born of Adam, born in the natural way, no one is righteous. No, not one. Only our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Notice 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 22. He says, He committed no sin, neither was there deceit found in his mouth. Jesus committed no sin, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. He never lied. He always told the truth. Isn't the mouth an evidence of the sinfulness of man? For it is out of the abundance of the heart that the mouth speaks. And what is typically in the mouth of men? Lies and deceits, curses, bitterness, all of these things are found in the mouth of men, but not in Jesus' mouth. Even in the situation where he was in a very dire situation, when he was suffering so greatly, so cruelly, so unjustly, yet even there, in that horrible situation, there was no deceit in his mouth. And he did not revile. No, he did not do any of those things, but he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Notice here the testimony as well of Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 21 says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Right? He made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin. He knew no sin in terms of original sin. He did not have the guilt of Adam's sin as we do. Nor did he know sin in terms of actual sins. He never committed one transgression against God in his entire life. And yet he became sin, right? Not by his actions, not by what he did or what he said. He became sin by imputation. God took our sin and placed it on Christ. That's the same as our passage here. He bore our sins in his body on the tree. He never committed an actual sin, but he was treated as a sinner when he died on the cross for our sins. Hebrews chapter 4 also. Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 14. Hebrews 4 14. says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, 
but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. Here, he's talking of how Jesus is a faithful high priest and one who is able to sympathize with the weakness of those that he represents. And the reason he's able to sympathize with our weaknesses, with our temptations, is because he was tempted in every way as we are, except without what? Without sin. We are tempted and we sin. He was tempted, but he never sinned, right? This is the exception. He's like us in every way except this one. He never committed any sin. Even Pilate, who was a wicked man and had no regard for truth and righteousness, even Pilate, when he examined Jesus, knew and testified that he was innocent, that he had done nothing that was worthy or deserving of death. So though he was sinless, Though he was innocent, he died on the cross, though. He died as a sinner. He died as one who was sinful and wicked. And this not for his own sins, but for our sins. That's why he says he bore our sins in his body on the tree. When we see someone die as a criminal, we think he must be a very wicked man. We think he must be a very sinful man. Otherwise, why would he be being put to death in this way? But this wasn't the case with Jesus. He was innocent, he was righteous, yet he died in this way, not for his sins, but he died for the sins of others. For our sin was imputed unto Christ. The guilt of our sin was placed upon him, and then God the Father punished him instead of punishing us. The punishment that we deserved was upon him by God the Father. Isaiah chapter 53 Isaiah 53 teaches this clearly in the prophecy concerning the sufferings of Christ. The prophecy of Isaiah concerning the sufferings of Christ. Isaiah chapter 53, verse 4 says, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Then also notice verse 12. It says, Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he poured out his soul to death, and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. There he says, he bore our griefs, he carried our sorrows, he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. The Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was numbered with the transgressors. He was counted, numbered, as if he was a transgressor. He bore the sin of many. Though he was righteous, a righteous man who had no sin, no guilt of sin, no punishment was deserving to Christ, he was treated as a sinner, he was punished as a sinner, not because of his sin, but for ours. This because he stands as a substitute in the place of sinners. A sacrifice of atonement, a substitutionary sacrifice who stands and takes the place of the sinner. We deserve to be on the cross. We deserve to be under the curse of God. We deserve both physical death and spiritual death for all eternity. But instead of us receiving that, Christ stood in our place and he took it upon himself. Notice Leviticus 16. Leviticus chapter 16 Verses 21 and 22. Here it teaches this truth by way of illustration. By way of illustration or symbol or type in the Old Testament. And these truths were taught to the people then in anticipation of the coming of Christ. Leviticus chapter 16 verse 21 says, And Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel, 
in all their transgressions, all their sins. And he shall put them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who is in readiness. The goat shall bear all of their iniquities on itself to a remote area, and he shall let the goat go free in the wilderness. There, in this ritual, Aaron, the priest, was to take and lay his hands on the goat and confess the sins of the people, the iniquity of the people, over the goat. And the sin was symbolically or ritually transferred from the people onto the goat. The goat bore their iniquities, and then the goat was sent outside the camp into the wilderness into a desolate place. Now, can the blood of bulls and goats take away sin? Can an animal, a mere goat, take the sins of the entire nation of the people and bear them and remove them and be a sufficient payment for the sins of the people? Of course not. No one with a right mind, with half a brain, at this time would ever think that this goat is a sufficient sacrifice to take away the sins of the people. So then why are they doing it? They're doing it in anticipation of the coming of Christ, right? In anticipation of what he will do. Because God the Father will take our sins and confess them over Christ. He will place them upon him. He will bear our iniquities and then he will be put to death in a desolate place, right? Outside the camp, outside the gate, in the remote area. Is that not what happened to our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ? Well, according to the apostle it is. He bore our sins in his body on the tree. Our transgressions, our iniquities, our sins were placed on him and then he bore them in a remote area outside the camp or outside the gate. Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews chapter 13. This is what the apostle teaches here. In Hebrews chapter 13, verse 11. Hebrews 13, verse 11 says, For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear their reproach he endured. Jesus suffered outside the gate or outside the camp. Remember, they did not put him to death in Jerusalem, but they took him outside the city, and that is where he was put to death. That is where he bore his reproach. And here the apostle is telling us, we have to go out there with him outside the gate or outside the camp and suffer the same reproach that Christ suffered. And what is the reproach of Christ? It is the cross of Christ. It is his cross, meaning we also have to take up our crosses daily and follow after Christ. Jesus took the place of sinners. He took our sin upon himself, and then he suffered and died in our place as a sacrifice and as a substitute. 1 Peter 3.18 says, Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. The righteous for the unrighteous. The righteous Son of God for unrighteous sinners like you and me. And God the Father punished Jesus instead of us. And this is how he secures or brings about our redemption. Right? Because when there is sin, there must be penalty. There must be payment. The justice of God demands it. How can God be a holy and righteous God and overlook the many sins committed against him? How can he be a just judge when there are so many crimes that are worthy of death that deserve to be punished? Just as in our own day, would we consider a judge to be a good judge if he let murderers, serial killers go free? If he did not charge them, did not punish them, did not imprison them or put them to death? We would not consider him just if he let them go free. Well, how can God, who is completely just and righteous, allow so many sins, all deserving of death, go unpunished against him? It's impossible. So how can God then forgive sinners? How can he be reconciled to sinners like you and me when there are so many sins that we have committed against God that must be paid for? 
there must be a death, there must be a penalty for these sins, and that penalty is not meted out upon us, but is instead upon Jesus Christ. He is the sacrifice, God punishing him instead of us. He taking what we deserve in our place. This also is taught in Genesis, all the way back in Genesis chapter 22. These concepts are not new and novel to the New Testament, as many people presume. But these truths, these concepts were taught in many ways, even in the Old Testament, so that the people would be longing for and waiting for the coming of Christ. Genesis chapter 22 This is when Abraham is called by God to take his only son Isaac and to offer him as a sacrifice on the mountain there. And we'll pick up in verse 7. Isaac said to his father Abraham, My father, he said, Here I am, my son. He said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? And Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went both of them together. And when they came to the place of which God told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here I am. He said, Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of the place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. So there, when the angel of the Lord, who is our Lord Jesus Christ, prohibits and stops Abraham from putting Isaac to death. He doesn't say, no one has to die. There still needs to be a death that takes place that day, but instead of Isaac dying, God provided a ram in his place, and it says that he put the ram to death instead of his son. And then he called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. And then Moses says, so many years later, that it's still called to the very day on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. What shall be provided? The sacrifice for sin. The sacrifice for sinners will be provided by whom? By God. The Lord himself will provide the sacrifice. So this is the way it was. Jesus Christ is the sacrifice provided by God who bears our sins and then dies in our place. And notice in 1 Peter 2, 24, it says, He bore our sins in His body. In His body. This is why it was necessary for Him to have a human body, for Him to take on human flesh, because He did not come to die for angels, though there are fallen angels who need redemption, but he did not come to give redemption to them, and none of them will ever be saved or have the possibility of being redeemed. So he did not come to die for angels. He came to die for the children of Abraham, for people. Hebrews chapter 2, which is why it was necessary for him to take on human flesh so that he could die in our place. Hebrews chapter 2 verse 14 says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Right? The children, the sons, his brothers, they have flesh and blood. 
we have a soul and a body. So Jesus, as a man, possessed a soul and a body. And this is how he was put to death. He had to have a human body so that he might die as a sacrifice for sinners. Because the wages of sin is death. The soul that sins shall surely die. On the day that you eat of it, he says, you shall surely die. The punishment that men deserve because of sin is death. Both physical death in this life and then spiritual death in the life to come. Both the first and the second death, which is the lake of fire. For Jesus to die in our place, then he must have a body that is able to die, which is why it was necessary for him to become incarnate, for him to take on human flesh. The children he came to redeem have flesh and blood. Our flesh and blood need redemption. So he came and took on flesh and blood that he might die as a substitute and sacrifice for our sins. And then notice as well in 1 Peter 2.24 that his death was on a tree. He bore our sins in his body on the tree, right? Or on the cross. This is where the place where God makes this transaction, imputes our sin onto Christ, and then he suffers and dies there on the tree for us. Death on a tree was a symbol of the curse of God, that this person was accursed and under the wrath and curse of God. This according to Galatians, if we look at Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3. Verse 13. Galatians 3.13 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. Right Now, what is the curse of the law? It is death. That is the curse of the law is death. Okay, he redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Cursed, he says, is everyone who is hanged on the tree or on a tree. Well, this is what Jesus did on the cross. He took the curse of God due to sin. The death on the tree was a symbol that what took place when Jesus was crucified was the cursing of God upon him. God pouring his wrath out upon his son. His hatred, his judgments against sin, he poured those out on him. And then Jesus took the full wrath of God upon himself and he extinguished it. He took all of it and he satisfied the just demands of God, the legal demands of God from the law he satisfied when he died on the cross. Otherwise, he wouldn't have rose from the grave. If there was still debt remaining, then he would remain dead. But that he rose from the grave is the proof from God the Father that his payment was sufficient and that it truly was finished by Jesus on the cross. Amen. Colossians 2, 13 to 15. Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 to 15. It says, in you, who were dead in your trespasses, in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us of all of our trespasses, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and the authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. There, he says, that because of our trespasses, there is a record of debt that stands against us with its legal demands. Right? The justice of God, the law of God, keeps a record of our debts, our sins against God, and the legal demands that God requires because of these sins. Well, when Jesus died on the cross, he paid for these debts. He paid them in the full, and this is why he nailed the debts to the cross as evidence as testimony that all of those debts that we owe to God because of our sin, that they had been satisfied in the person and work of Christ. This is what he did when he bore our sins in his body on the tree. He triumphed over sin, over death, over Satan. 
He canceled the record of debt that stood against us. He canceled the debt that we owe to the justice of God by dying on the cross in our place. Now, for what purpose? What is the outcome of this? Right? What does his bearing our sins in his body on the tree do? What does it accomplish in the life of those who are redeemed? Well, notice what he says in 1 Peter 2, 24. That we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. In our natural state, we are enslaved to sin, death, and Satan. These three exercise a tyranny over man in their natural or in the sinful state. The old man belongs to them. The old man cannot be released from them. Men do not have the ability to live a sinless life. No one has that ability because they are slaves to sin. Nor do men have the ability to overcome death. Show me one person in this world who has the ability in himself, through his own power, through his own wisdom, through his own ingenuity, to overcome the power of death. Where is this man that has immortal life and is living forever? They're not found on this earth. So people do not have the power to overcome death because they cannot overcome one sin and they are under the rule and tyranny of Satan. So we cannot be released from their power through our own human efforts, through our own power and our own strength. But by the power of the Spirit, when we are united by faith to the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, then we are released from sin. Then the old man is put to death, the natural man is put to death, and the new man rises with Christ in his place. The new man is no longer a slave to sin. The new man is not under the power of death or under the power of Satan, but now is free to righteousness, free to belong to another. The death and resurrection of Jesus Christ frees us from the power of sin, from the penalty of death, and from the rule of the devil, so that these no longer exercise dominion over the sons of God. Now, they still pester the sons of God, right? We still have to deal with temptation. We still have to deal with death temporarily because our physical bodies are going to die. But eventually, what will God do? He's going to resurrect us and give us eternal life. We still have to deal with Satan and his temptations. However, God will not let him have dominion over us anymore. And we are, by the Spirit, able to exercise some victory over sin and the devil. They do not have dominion, the same power over the children of God as they do over sinful, wicked men. This because Christ has set us free. He has set us free. We have died to sin so that we might now live to righteousness. He set us free through his death and resurrection for the forgiveness of sins. The old man was a slave to sin, but that man in the children of God, has been put to death. Now, not in the children of men, not in all men, right? Most men, unbelieving men, sinful men, they are still ruled by the old men. That's all that they are. They are a natural man, and they are slaves to sin, because whatever overcomes a man, to that he is enslaved. But not with the children of God, not with believers. With believers, the old man has been put to death, and the new man has risen in its place, and the new man is not a slave to sin, but is rather a slave to righteousness. Amen. Therefore, that's going to be manifested in the way that he lives. He's going to live a godly life instead of a sinful and wicked life. Not a perfect life, but he will pursue godliness and righteousness in his life. Okay, Romans chapter 6. These truths are taught in many places, but very clearly in Romans chapter 6 and verse 1. Romans chapter 6, verse 1. It says, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we've been united with him in a death like his, 
we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. You're dead to sin, he says, and you're alive to God. Right? The old man was crucified with him. We were baptized into the death of Christ, and now the old self is crucified. The body of sin is brought to nothing. We're no longer slaves to sin, and we have new life in Christ. We've been raised with him to walk in newness of life. Therefore, we should not let sin reign in our mortal bodies to make us obey its passions. Also, Romans chapter 7. Romans chapter 7, verse 1 says, Do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. For a married woman is bound by the law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from the law, and if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers... You also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we may serve in the new way of the Spirit and not the old way of the written code. Right? The old man crucified with Christ, the old man, slave to sin, the old man, under the condemnation of death, the old man, ruled by the God of this world. The old man was married to sin, death, and Satan, but that old man has now died, and the new man has risen in his place, and that new man is free to belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, so that we might bear fruit for God. He's no longer obligated or bound to sin, Satan, and death because he has died to sin. So the good fruit of righteousness. This is possible in the children of God because Christ has set them free from dominion of sin. He has filled them with his Holy Spirit and the Spirit causes us to walk not in the ways of sin, but in newness of light. So here we see then that righteousness Godly living, upright in obedience, life, is not contrary to the cross of Christ. But it is the very purpose of the cross of Christ is to set us free from sin so that we might live a godly life. So if we are preaching and teaching righteousness, godly living, obedience, right, not as the basis of salvation, but as the outcome of salvation, that is not contrary to the gospel, It is not contrary to the cross. It is not legalism, but this is according to the tradition of the prophets and the apostles because this is what they taught. Is this not what he's teaching here? That we might die to sin and live to righteousness. What does it mean to live to righteousness other than to obey God and to walk in the pathway of his commandments? This is why Christ died, so that we would be free from our sin and might live godly lives to the glory of God. Notice he says as well, by his wounds, you have been healed. His wounds, his stripes, his suffering becomes the medicine that heals us from the disease of sin. His wounds bring us healing. His death brings us life. His punishment brings us peace. His humiliation brings us glory. Right? It's the opposite. Whatever happens to Christ, it has the opposite effect on us. He is wounded, we are healed. He dies, and we come to life. In our natural state, we have the disease of sin. Sin is a cancer. It is a disease that consumes our whole being. Right? A little leaven leavens the whole lump. Well, the lump that is mankind 
has been thoroughly leavened, not with just a little bit of leaven, but a whole bunch of leaven, right? With much sin and iniquity. So that we are sick with sin from head to toe. The guilt of Adam's sin and the guilt of our own actual sins that we've committed throughout our entire life. And we are diseased ridden because of sin. As it says in Isaiah chapter 1 verse 6, From the sole of the foot, even to the head, there is no soundness in it, but bruises and sores and raw wounds. They are not pressed out or bound up or softened with oil. From the sole of the foot to the top of the head, no soundness, no soundness at all, but only festering, rotten, stinking wounds. This is what we are covered in because of our sin and our iniquity. And this is how people think. Most people believe that if they're just good enough, then God's going to let them into heaven. This is how they're going to present themselves to God. Covered with wounds and sores, disease-ridden and filthy, and they think that God's going to let them into heaven. It can't happen that way. There must be purity. There must be a cleansing that takes place so that a man is fit to enter into the kingdom of God. And what is the only cure for the disease of sin? Jesus Christ. The person and work of Jesus Christ. His wounds bring us healing. His blood shed for us. His stripes heal our disease-ridden body and soul. It is the blood of Jesus, his son, that cleanses us from all sin. 1 John chapter 1, verse 7. And Jesus says in Luke 5, 31, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. It is not those who are well, who think they're well. No one's well. This is the problem. Everyone is sick, but many people think that they're not sick. They think that they're okay. So they're in a delusion. They're living a lie. In reality, they're covered with sickness, with cancer, but they're living and believing that everything is all right between them and God. This is why we have to come to a knowledge of our sin. Right. right? So don't blame me for preaching against sin, right? Because it makes you feel bad. Well, how are you going to go to the physician if you don't know that you're sick? Does anyone get mad at the doctor? when he comes and gives them the diagnosis and tells them what ails them so that they can provide a remedy? No, they don't get mad at the doctor. They thank the doctor for giving them the remedy. And then they have to pay him a bunch of money, right? They're not doing it out of goodwill. Right? They're doing it for money. Well, who, why should we get mad at people who tell us about the disease of sin, right? Because the reason we need to know this is so that we might seek out a remedy, so that we might get the medicine that we need in this life to cure us of our diseases before we stand before God on the day of judgment. So we should be grateful and thankful for anyone who will expose our sin so that we can also get the healing, the medicine for our wounds. Okay, 1 Peter 2.25. 4, he says, You were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Here, the proof, the proof that the elect have truly been healed of the disease of sin, right? Because everyone says that they're a Christian. I mean, at least in our part of the world, or many, many people claim to be Christians. They claim to belong to Christ. They claim that Jesus is their shepherd. They claim to be a part of the church or the household of faith, that they belong to the flock of Christ. But how do we know, right? What is the evidence that a person truly belongs to Christ, that he is truly one of his sheep. Well, notice what he says. You were straying like sheep. This is what used to be true of you in your sinful natural state, in the diseased state, we were straying like sheep. As it says, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Isaiah 53 verse 6. We had wandered far from the flock. We were in the wilderness. We were living in sin just like the rest of mankind, right? The sheep living out in the wilderness who has strayed away from the shepherd, he's not under the rule. He's not under the care of the shepherd, but he's exposed in the wilderness to wild prey, right? He's doing whatever he wants out there. He's not living under the rule, the care, the guidance of his good shepherd. And this is what is true of all believers 
before their conversion. They were like sheep who had strayed, who had wandered away. They were dead in their trespasses and sins. Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. Now the point being, notice he's speaking in the past tense. This is what used to be true of them, but it's not true anymore. And that's what we have to look for. Right? If these things are true in the present, then it's evidence that a person does not belong to Christ, that they're not one of his sheep. Because those who belong to Christ are not straying sheep, but they are the sheep who have been brought back to the fold. Ephesians 2 verse 1, But you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Here he's speaking to believers of what they were like before their conversion, before their salvation. He says, you were dead. You once walked in this way. You used to live like this. You were by nature children of wrath. Right? All of these are past tense. This is what used to be true of you, but not anymore. Right? It's not the way it is today. Those who have been converted by the Spirit of Christ, who have been cleansed of their sin, who have been cured of the disease of iniquity, they're no longer dead in their sins. Right? They're no longer walking after the pattern of this world. They're no longer living in the passion of their flesh. They're no longer children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But now they've been made alive together with Christ. This is the same as our passage here. In our sinful state, we were straying like a lost sheep, like one who was far away from the fold of God. But he says, not anymore. But now this is not the case. Now, he says, you have returned to the shepherd and the overseer of your souls. And who is the shepherd and overseer of the soul? Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the good shepherd. He is the overseer of the flock of God, of the souls of his flock. Right? Not the souls of the wicked. He will be the punisher of their souls, but he is the overseer and the carer, the one who provides for the souls of his flock, of his people. John chapter 10. John chapter 10 teaches this. John chapter 10, verse 1. says, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door but climbs in another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all of his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. This figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. So Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them in also, and they will listen to my voice, so there will be one flock and one shepherd. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. So the evidence that Jesus is our shepherd and that we are his sheep is that he knows us 
and we know him. He calls us, and we follow him. My sheep hear my voice, and they follow me. That's what Jesus says. So if someone claims to be a sheep of Christ, but he doesn't follow Christ, then is he one of his sheep? Does he belong to him? No. Then they don't belong to him. That's the same as our passage here. We were straying like sheep, but now the good shepherd has called us, and we have returned to him. So the true sheep live under the care and guidance of the shepherd. Those who are in the wilderness, they're not living under him. They're doing whatever they want. But the true sheep, they are the ones who have returned to Christ and are under him. Right? And Christ cannot be our shepherd in the wilderness. He is our shepherd in the fold, with the flock, with him. Right? He cannot be our savior without also being our Lord. Now, I say this because this is what most people want. What most people want is a guarantee that they're going to go to heaven when they die and that Jesus will be the one to get them there. But then how do they want to live? They want to live like a sheep in the wilderness. They want Jesus as their Savior. They want a guarantee that they, when they die, they're going to go to heaven, but they want to live however they want to live and not under the rule of Christ. Does it work like that? It doesn't work that way. It cannot be that way. You cannot be one of his sheep while living in the wilderness. The only way that you belong to Christ is you must come under his care, under his provision, under his guidance. We must live under his rule, and that is seen in the way that we respond to his word. My sheep hear my voice, and they follow me. If you love me, you will keep my commandments, you will be obedient to me. This is what it means to return to the shepherd and to the overseer of our soul. If we want Jesus as our shepherd, and if we want him as the watcher, the overseer of our souls, isn't that a good thing to have Jesus watching your soul? Then you have to come under his care. You have to submit to his rules, to his laws, and not live according to your own whims and fancies anymore. Not according to your own wisdom. So whatever he teaches, whatever he says, that's what we have to believe. Contrary to what the world says. Contrary to what we think. However he tells us to live, that's the way we have to live. Contrary to what the world is teaching, what the world is putting forward as good and great. The sheep happily, willingly submit to the good shepherd. They follow him wherever he goes, and they come under his oversight. He is the overseer of their soul. So whatever Christ says, this is what goes, right? And there's no other way of looking at it. If we have committed our souls into his care, we must trust him as the overseer of our soul. Trust that his word and his will is what is best for our soul. And we remember here in 1 Peter 2, it's set within the context of suffering. The church suffering, the slave suffering under the unjust master. He cannot resist the will of Christ. If the good shepherd brings you under the unjust master, then you have to entrust yourself to him, to his will, knowing that whatever he leads you into is for your good and it is according to his will and he will bring it about in due time. The sheep of Christ have returned to him and have entrusted their souls to his care. And this is why they have nothing to fear. They have no fear, because if Christ is our shepherd, and if he is our overseer, then our entire life is in his care, under his supervision. And it is impossible that a soul would be entrusted to Jesus by the Father, and that Jesus would fail to save that soul that he would fail to do what is necessary to provide everything needed for life and godliness, right? This is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day, John 6, 39. Every sheep given to Christ by the Father will enter into the kingdom of God. Not one of his sheep will be lost. Now, not the goats, The goats don't belong to him. They will go into eternal destruction. But the sheep, they will go to eternal life because they are the ones given to him by the Father that he has come to save and he will save every single one of them. 
And this is why we have such a glorious hope. A sure and steadfast anchor for the soul. Our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. His person, His work, and His His purpose. His person is He is the Son of God in human flesh. So He is a fitting substitute for sinners. His work is that He bore our sins in His body on the tree. And His purpose is that we might die to sin and that we might live to righteousness. To save to the uttermost those who believe. To bring us back to God. And He will not fail. He cannot fail. He does all things well. He will accomplish what He has set out to do. This is what Christ intends and this is what He will surely accomplish. We'll finish with a reading from Ezekiel 34. Ezekiel chapter 34 teaches this as well. Ezekiel 34, verse 11. It says, For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I, I myself, will search for my sheep and will seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that have been scattered, so I will seek out my sheep and I will rescue them from all the places where they have been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. So notice that. How is it that we are returned to the flock of God? He seeks us out. He seeks us out. He finds us in the wilderness and he brings us back. He puts us on his shoulder and he carries us back. Not by our strength, not by our power. He is the one who does it. Verse 13, And I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from many countries and will bring them into their own land. And I will feed them on the mountains of Israel by the ravines and in the inhabited places of the country. I will feed them with good pasture, and on the mountain heights of Israel shall be their grazing land. There they shall lie down in good grazing land, and on rich pasture they shall feed on the mountains of Israel. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep, and I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. I will seek the lost, and I will bring back the strayed, and I will bind up the injured, and I will strengthen the weak. And the fat and the strong I will destroy. I will feed them with justice. As for you, my flock, thus says the Lord God, behold, I judge between sheep and sheep, between rams and male goats. Is it not enough for you to feed on the good pasture that you must tread down with your feet the rest of your pasture and to drink of clear water that you must muddy the rest of the water with your feet? And must my sheep eat what you have trodden with your feet and drink what you have muddied with your feet? Therefore, thus says the Lord God, behold, I, I myself, will judge between the fat sheep and the lean sheep, because you push with side and shoulder and thrust all the weak with your horns till you have scattered them abroad. I will rescue my flock, and they shall no longer be a prey, and I will judge between sheep and sheep, and I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them, and he shall feed them and be their shepherd, and I, the Lord, will be their God, And my servant David shall be prince among them. I am the Lord. I have spoken. So there it is. Ezekiel predicting that our Lord Jesus Christ, the servant of David, he is the one who will come. And he is the one who will care for, who will rescue his sheep, provide for them. And he is the one that will bring salvation to the people of God. He is the only way of salvation. We must put our hope in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. He is the only sacrifice provided by God and the only one that men can entrust their souls to that will bring about eternal life and salvation and the forgiveness of sins. And if you have trusted in Christ, you will not be put to shame. He will not disappoint, but he will surely raise you up on the last day and give to you the outcome of your faith, which is the salvation of your soul. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word. And Lord, how it so clearly teaches, Lord, that there is only one way of salvation. Lord, though the world proclaims that there are many ways of salvation, Lord, that there are many different paths to reach you, Lord, your word tells us the exact opposite, that there is only one way that there is only one name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. And this is through not 
merely the name of Christ, but the person and the work that are associated with that name. What it is that he has done, who he is, the Son of God in human flesh, and what he has done, he died on the cross for our sins, and he has been raised for our justification. Lord, we pray that there would be found within us true faith, Lord, true repentance. Lord, that we would be those who have believed in Jesus Christ for salvation. Lord, that we would not be superficial. Lord, that we would not be those who, who claim to have Christ as our shepherd, but through our, un, our disobedience and our unruly life, Lord, prove that we are still living in the wilderness, Lord, going our own way. So, Lord, may we have a true claim upon him. And, Lord, may our claim upon him be evidenced by a life of godliness and righteousness. Lord, we pray that our families, Lord, would also know of this hope and of this salvation. Lord, knowing that the inheritance that we have given to our children, Lord, the heritage is a heritage of sin, Lord, in our natural state. Lord, that we have given to them a sinful, natural, corrupt nature. And that, Lord, in the natural state, we have all strayed like sheep. We have gone our own way. But, Lord, we pray that you would seek out our children. That, Lord, you would call them. And that they would hear your voice and that they would return to you as well. That you would go and seek them out on the mountains and in the wilderness. And that you would bring them into the fold of God that we might all be united together under one fold, under one body with the same shepherd. Lord, we pray that you would provide for us. Lord, you are the good shepherd. And Lord, you cause us to lie down in green pastures. And Lord, you are the one who leads us beside still waters. Lord, feed us through your holy word. Lord, give to us greater faith. Lord, cause us to, to grow and to mature, Lord, to greater, greater degrees of godliness and righteousness. So, Lord, we pray that you would fill us with all things, Lord, all that is necessary for life and godliness, and that, Lord, in this church, in this assembly of, Lord, this flock, Lord, that there would be found those that are well-fed, Lord, that are sleek, that are not diseased and lame, Lord, that are not languishing away because they are starved from any lack of your word. But, Lord, we pray that we would be sleek and fat, Lord, not in an evil sense, but in a good way, Lord, with the spiritual riches that are ours through Jesus Christ. So, Lord, we pray for your blessing to be upon us. Lord, we commit our lives and our souls into your care, Lord, knowing that you can make no mistake, and, Lord, knowing that if we entrust ourselves to you, Lord, it will lead to our eternal life. So, Lord, we give ourselves into your care, and we pray that you build us up in our faith. And it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.